Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Stefan Partelow, and today I'm talking with Jörg Niewoner. Jörg is a professor at Humboldt University in Berlin, Germany, and is the director of Integrative Research Institute on Transformations of Human Environment Systems, with the acronym IRETESIS. He holds a PhD in Environmental Sciences from the University of East Anglia. In 2004, he joined the Institute of European Ethnology at Humboldt University to develop a collaborative program between social anthropology and the life sciences. He now holds a chair in social anthropology of human-environment relations. Jurg conducts ethnographic research at the intersection of science and technology studies, social anthropology, and environmental sciences, focusing particularly on the qualities of urbanization, social ecological change, and metabolic and market dynamics. He also serves on the board of the George Simmel Center for Metropolitan Studies. In this episode, we discuss how reflecting on theory of science can help position scholars towards understanding interdisciplinarity challenges. We also discuss the challenges with inter- and transdisciplinarity, along with his perspectives on the challenges and paths forward. We also touch on how the structural organization of universities and institutes balances the traditional disciplinary orientation of the science system and more innovative forms of academic organization and how they foster interdisciplinarity. Jörg also talks about his future research interests in long-term social ecological research with a focus on qualitative and quality change using qualitative data. For this, he is interested in pushing forward innovative ways to archive qualitative data in social groups as living knowledge and archives rather than traditional digital repositories. Let's just jump right in. We met not too long ago as part of this Robert Bosch Postdoc Academy on Transformational Leadership and I really enjoyed that. And and now since we've started the podcast, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, who would be some great people to to dig a little bit deeper and people I want to have a longer conversation with and, and hear some more about. And I thought, okay, Jörg is perfect. I'd love to uh, to hear a little bit more about his thoughts on certain things. So to start off, let's let's hear a little bit more about your background, how you how you got to where you are today and how that got into your current line of thinking in your education. And I think that'll lead into some nice questions about the the research topics that you focus on now. Yeah, sure. So I originally wanted to do something with the environment after school, if I may go back to back this far. And uh, I ended up going to the UK to study environmental sciences at the University of East Anglia, uh, partly and maybe somewhat surprisingly, because at the time in the mid 90s, Germany didn't really offer any sort of comprehensive interdisciplinary degree programs, which I'll come back to uh, in the end. and so I went to the UK, studied environmental sciences as a bachelor um, with an emphasis on questions of climate and climate science on the one hand, and sort of environmental management and environmental policy, social science approaches, uh, environmental social sciences on the other hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from there, I went into a PhD on questions of risk perception and risk communication. So a mixture of sort of uh, social, psychological and, and sociological uh, methods. And I was quite happy with that. But towards the end of that work, I got increasingly uh, sort of frustrated with the, with the psychological methods, trying, sort of spending a lot of time trying to understand very little in the variation of risk perception and not being very contextual about understanding people's, people's perceptions and people's views. Um, so for a whole number of reasons, I, uh, I, I left the UK, went to Germany, uh, and then ended up in, I guess, increasingly in understanding or a field of science and technology studies, trying to understand how, how knowledge was produced, how expertise came about, how it was negotiated and transferred. Um, and that got me through a number of projects uh, into anthropology, or as we call it here, into European ethnology. Um, and I worked for a long time on uh, questions of medical anthropology. Um, so how people deal with illnesses, uh, how knowledge, how new knowledge about diseases comes about and how that changes society. Uh, and through that, I became interested in human environment uh, uh, relations and how people um, r- relate to their environment, how, they, um, how their bodies are constructed, etc. That got me into human environment relations. And that then made me go full circle to look into questions of um, sort of environmental health and public health and then increasingly into questions of sustainability. Um, so I'm now working sort of with colleagues again from back in back in the UK, 
uh, in environmental sciences, but having gone sort of full circle through the social sciences and now being more interested at the interface of um, sort of social ecological thinking. What was the spark of the interest to move towards a little bit more of a science and technology studies? And it seemed in the beginning, you're more on environmental studies, climate change oriented, it's more thematic topics. And this, my limited understanding of science and technology is this more of a reflective look kind of on path dependencies, a little bit about how certain ideas and technologies and infrastructures shape yeah. knowledge production. What, what was the shift for you there? What was the real interest? It was a very specific project. I mean, for me, the key switch was really from being part of uh, uh, an academic system that produces knowledge around questions of, uh, of risk perception, of climate, et cetera, uh, to, to switching on to a more of a meta level of thinking, how, how are we actually producing this knowledge and who's in charge of this and what are the power relations? And the way this happened was um, we were working on a project, we were using mental model approaches and we were working on a project where um, on, on dry cleaners and uh, risk communication for dry cleaners. And the idea was um, we model expert knowledge on this on the one hand, and we model um, sort of workers knowledge on the other. And by overlaying the models, we can see what the workers get right, what they get wrong, where they need sort of reinforcing messages or where we have to fill gaps, right? So a very simple uh, communication targeting approach. <laughs> and the interesting thing was though, that we could, we, we could we could do the we could go through the steps right but we could never get the expert models right because there was so much disagreement <laughs> so if you look at um, dry cleaning substances perchlorochloroethylene being one um, they may or may not be carcinogenic and so you immediately get into discussions with when you do expert interviews into discussions how do you, the europeans look at this uh, how do the Americans, the North Americans look at this? How do official government agencies look at this? How do individual labs look at this? And what the, the, the method is meant to construct this expert consensus, right? So the truth, and then you can match it with what lay people think about it, um, or workers in this case. Um, and that, that didn't work because we couldn't get the expert consensus. And that got me thinking, how is it that we don't agree on these things? And, you know, and that led to increasing frustration with the way we don't think about how we construct knowledge. And that got me then increasingly deeper uh, into science and technology studies, trying to understand the kind of the sociological, organizational and practical issues of how we produce knowledge. Mm -hmm. Was that a reflection mostly on within the science system? So between different disciplines or thematic areas, or was this more already forward looking into a link between science and outside bodies of knowledge, outside the science system knowledge? Uh, yeah, local people, private businesses, et cetera, governments. Uh, a bit of both, but it started off as, as, a, as, a, as a question of um, differences between disciplines or interdisciplinarity. Uh, mm -hmm. So how come we, we frame what, what looks to one person as a, as a straightforward problem? How come other people frame this so differently? Right. Um, and that became, in, that became more and more interesting. Uh, and then once you... Kind of once you naturalize this idea uh, in yourself that uh, knowledge is constructed, it's only one further step to then ask, well, who else is actually producing knowledge um, and what counts as truth and what doesn't and is it bound to institutions? Uh, and shouldn't we be thinking of knowledge in a more ecological sense as spread across a whole field of institutions and actors? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and so that opens up a, a whole different perspective on knowledge compared to there's disciplines of you know, then there's experts and they produce, uh, you know, an, an objective, a truth as possible, if you like. Yeah, you mentioned something in there, this, I think you said this jump up to the meta level of thinking. And that's, it's actually not a term that I hear too often from folks. I, I, it seems to be that, you know, in science, at least the drive for doing a PhD is to specialize, 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 go and find your field of research and reflecting on this uh, theory of science way back in the background or way up at the meta level is not something which I wouldn't say encourage, but it's not something that I see as regularly part of like a, a PhD training. Hey, let's think about what we're actually doing here and the history of how <laughs> this, of a uh, history of how this knowledge has evolved over time and some of the core principles of what knowledge is and why we produce it. And I wonder, did this jump for you that going up to this kind of meta level and then perhaps back down um, more recently in some new projects, we can talk about that after this. But do you see that as, as kind of an essential leap to understand these 
these knowledge practices for interdisciplinarity, transdisciplinarity? Well, I'm not sure whether essential is the right word. And of course, it depends on what you want to do. And I wouldn't want to be prescriptive about, you know, what people ought to be doing. I think the good thing about science in in democratic countries is that, you know, we, we, we decide ourselves what's part of it and then we let people get on with whatever they're best at and interested in. Um, so I wouldn't want to be sort of too openly normative about it, but looking at what we're good at in the system at the moment, it's certainly producing specialists, right? I mean, the field of sustainability research, human environment research is, is, is probably an odd one, but even there, you know, the, the classical reward systems, um, especially around PhDs, et cetera, they, they urge you to be a specialist, right? Um, I was even told when I was doing my PhD, that's the whole point of a PhD. You have to be, do you have to become uh, one of the key people in that very small field globally? You know, once you've done, once you've done that, then that's basically, you, you get a PhD for that. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think we should keep doing that. We need people to specialize and to dig really, really deep uh, into very small areas. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, and we're, we're less good at that within the scientific system. I think it's inevitable that if you want to communicate with others a- across disciplinary boundaries, uh, you need a standpoint outside of your own sort of naturalized view. You need to be able to step aside or step up or down, whatever you want to call it. Don't want to hierarchize it, don't bring a hierarchy into it. Um, but you have to step aside and you know, watch yourself doing what you're doing to then see, oh, this is what I'm doing. This is what other people are doing. What's the common ground? And that's much easier with sort of some basic training, at least in sort of history and philosophy of science and in science and technology studies, because you can understand a little more systematically how scientific institutions work, how knowledge is produced, um, you know, what, what, what forms of realism and constructivism are out there and where people are coming from. And that in, in these highly interdisciplinary fields um, of human environment research or social ecological research, I think that's absolutely essential. Um, so I wouldn't want to play them against each other, specialization and sort of interdisciplinary ability. Um, we, we, should, we should bring them together in, in sort of su- sufficiently extensive training programs, you know, so people can, can, take, their, can take their time to, to pick up both. Really. Do you get the sense that that is an emerging trend in the human environment space and the sustainability science space, that that is a recognition that needs to be incorporated into these types of programs? I think certainly in terms of the rhetoric that comes through funding organizations, et cetera. So, you know, you don't really get any money anymore, anymore if it's not inter and transdisciplinary and you need praxis partners on board and all this sort of stuff. Um, to what degree this is then actually done is a different matter. So I think the kind of the core reward systems, if you look at the journal landscape, et cetera, is still more disciplinary than I would like to see. But on the other hand, um, I'm also wary of, of the kind of the, the, the other trend, which you could see this in, the gen, in gender studies in universities. If you simply gather everyone together who thinks the same way, you know, and then call it sustainability science or something and, 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 uh, and, and don't interact with an outsider anymore. You also risk of, you know, the, the point of interdisciplinarity, kind of the friction between different thought styles getting lost. Mm-hmm. So I think if we, if we are to build a, a kind of a new faculty for the Anthropocene uh, and be putting all these people together that want to work across nature, culture, divides, etc., um, we ought to make sure that um, a degree of disciplinarity and specialization uh, is preserved within that as a constant source of friction and also the ability to connect to, to other disciplines uh, around you that will, that will persist. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I will definitely work with, with the tensions as much as we can between different thought styles, they not be disciplines, but between different ways of, you know, turning the world into a problem and looking for solutions. Mm-hmm. It makes me think about the nature of interdisciplinary work going forward. And I think, especially for young scholars who are thinking about, okay, they have this recognition that moving towards an interdisciplinary understanding, reflecting on this history of science and technology studies, theory of science, on the other hand, also perhaps specializing in an area is interdisciplinarity from that. That's a lot of things to juggle if you're one person. On the other hand, I think you can say interdisciplinarity maybe is more towards moving towards a team science approach where, yeah, it's fine for one person to specialize, that's okay but let's bring together people with different specialties 
and also some generalists, maybe some uh, yeah people in different disciplines, et cetera. What do you think the balance is there between trying to become interdisciplinary, fully interdisciplinary yourself versus trying to become more of a cooperative scientist who thinks and tries to work together with different folks? Yeah, it's an interesting model. I think we probably need a bit of both. Uh, I mean, to work well in a team, uh, I think you need to be able to understand how your team members and teammates are thinking. You need, you need at least, a, I believe, you need at least a, in many project constellations, at least a passive knowledge of, of people's methods, etc. cetera. Um, so I would think um, maybe that's a useful differentiation between what you can actually do actively yourself and you, you, know, you have an area of expertise and that's what you're good at and that's where you move the field forward and that's important. And then you have a, a, an increasingly sort of passive set of skills and knowledges and perspectives um, to connect to others. Mm -hmm. I think in, the, in some areas of the natural sciences, you can have teams where you have absolutely no idea what others are doing because knowledge is pretty much additive, right? You know, so one person is looking at this, then one person is doing the land use, the next person is doing something, some, some economic data or something, and they kind of simply add up, right? They kind of, they're layered and then you can write a paper with each one writes a paragraph and that sort of works. Mm -hmm. But I think in a lot of projects, um, and if you're tr really trying to move the field forward, you need to think the connections between these things through. Um, you need to knit this more tightly rather than, and then knowledge is not cumulative or additive, but it, it becomes sort of diffractive. The different perspectives uh, end up questioning each other. And that can't be done without understanding your colleagues, uh, at least to some degree. Um, mm -hmm. and finding ways of, of, con of conversing about these differences. Yeah, I've heard that as the baton model of interdisciplinarity, where it's kind of passing the baton on and you, the goal is to complete the race, but at no point is anyone running together. Well, let's get into a little bit of what you're working on now, your current position and some of the projects that you have going on at uh, Humboldt University and uh, IRE thesis. Yeah, well, my own days I'm increasingly spent <laughs> trying to uh, trying to manage and organize science, I guess, which is what happens with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, so sort of um, evolving or helping to evolve IRI thesis is a, is a major job. And then, of course, I've got my anthropological uh, work and my teaching. Um, so I'm mainly doing science management, which I'm enjoying, or institutional management. It's very interesting to set up an institute and um, help develop it and um, you know, trying to work its way into the structure of a university. Um, so that's one area we could talk about. The other is a project that we are working on. We, at the moment, we're starting a very interesting project um, with uh, Tobias Kruger on um, the, if the social-ecological social effects of um, hydroelectric or multipurpose dams in Colombia with colleagues uh, in Colombia and in Brazil, trying to understand whether and how dams um, affect social equality or inequality as part of the peace process in Colombia after the, um, you know, the FARC you know, peace agreement. Um, so there we are working across disciplines with a, a large group of PhD students and we're just starting this with a group of seven PhD students um, from you know, looking at sediment from sediment flow to inequality in village life and trying to integrate uh, this group um, with around the notion of I guess hydrosocial territory would be probably be the closest label. So trying to understand how different groups of actors in particular areas are trying to install particular territories. So um, let's say, you know, some people want to go for sustainability, others want to maximize profit, the next ones want, you know, particular social and cultural values to be at the forefront, etc. So you get a, a layering of different attempts to, to dominate a territory or a particular land use. And we're trying to understand the conflicts and how they're negotiated and how that leads to overall leads to more or less inequality, if you like. Um, that would be one one thing that we're engaging at the moment as part of our focus on land use practices and how they change. When you're thinking about designing or becoming or the original ideas for this as you develop a proposal and it moves forward through considering different funding options, what are the, what is this balance between what you would like to do, what you think should be done to, to do a kind of proper interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary research project and then kind of conceding, I guess is one way of saying it, to what the limitations are in terms of what the funders would want, what the timeline is going to be for the horizon, 
uh, making sure that the students uh, get the proper support that they need and a realistic approach so they can finish their PhDs. And do you think that this is something that hinders and requires a certain navigation to kind of balance between, yeah, the optimal interdisciplinary approach versus what you have to do in practice, which might be annoying or administrative, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, almost certainly. I mean, um, in the Columbia case, we are pretty lucky. It's funded by the, uh, the Volkswagen Foundation and they are for funding agency or foundation, they're, they're relatively open and quite mm -hmm. advanced in their thinking on interdisciplinarity. So you end up with a four year PhD contracts rather than the usual three years, which is already nice given that the any PhD project that's empirical it basically takes four years until you hand in. Yeah. Um, but given the interdisciplinarity, et cetera, so there's some extra learning that needs to be done in coordination, et cetera. Um, that's nice to have. Plus it's, it's a very open slot. So there we could basically start by writing a project design the way we want it to work and the way we, we want the kind of the qualifying posts mm -hmm. uh, in there to operate. So that's, that, that was, uh, that's quite luxurious in that sense. With most others, um, that's not the case. Uh, and especially, well, I guess there's two things. The one thing is, is the, the one thing that irritates me is how much you have to know about the, the, the kind of the, the results that you're expecting <laughs> before you start into a research project. So I think it's getting worse. You know, more and more you have to basically already know exactly what you're doing. So if you can't pin down the workflow on how this will all work exactly, the you know, risk averse funders and reviewers tend to, I find, tend to reject these things. And I find that a little irritating because of course, the whole point of research is that there's sort of, there's uncertainty in there and it's a certain openness. And I understand the project logic and why this happens, uh, but it's nevertheless irritating. And the, the other one is the one that you speak to about disciplinarity and interdisciplinarity, um, where I guess most funding agencies, while they play the rhetoric of interdisciplinarity in the end, end up with rather disciplinary review panels. Mm. Uh, and I think the biggest problem at the moment um, in the European context at large, uh, as far as I can see, is that truly interdisciplinary proposals tend to get a sort of a lukewarm, not, not hostile, but a lukewarm response from reviewers because people say, well, I can see this is interesting. Half of it I don't understand because it's out of, outside of my area. Um, uh, but the half that I do understand is sort of interesting. It's not where I think the, the, the mainstream of the field's going, but it's sort of relevant. And that's not enough anymore with the kind of, the, given the tight resources and the very the kind of the strong competitiveness because everyone needs to get their third party funding, et cetera. Um, that sort of, oh, that's interesting response is not enough. But the enthusiasm from reviewers is easier to get when you're right in the center of a disciplinary debate where everyone knows, oh, this is where the field, this is what the field's doing at the moment. Um, so that's a that's a real disadvantage of a lot of sort of uh, standard uh, science funding organizations uh, like DFG in Germany or um, or others similar in France or the UK. Um, people tend to come from disciplinary thinking when they do their reviewing. In Germany, particularly bad, probably because it is a very disciplinary structure still, also in the universities. I particularly was thinking about this idea that we have to know the results in advance and how that might limit innovation and creativity going forward. I see a lot of the interdisciplinary transplant as being in that sense, quite risky, because like you said, a lot of it is about testing things out, testing. We don't know necessarily how we're going to do this analysis or what's going to be the result of that, or we might have to be adaptive as we go along the way, as things change over a four or five year project. Do you have any, particular thoughts about how we could better navigate that space or what you think some of the barriers are to incentivizing this creativity and innovation rather than what's safe as also what you said at the end, if you're not firmly positioned in what could be seen as the past, like an existing disciplinary stream of thought, then it's more difficult to, to get a oh. chance. Well, I think there's one simple way of funding innovative thinking, I believe, and it's hugely unpopular, unfortunately, at the moment, in, I guess, in any Western uh, science funding system. And that's um, take, I don't know, 
pick a figure, take two thirds of the competitive funding and put it into the university structures or mm. research institution structures. I mean, everyone who's who's at the stage where they're, where they're being asked to do reviews, et cetera, knows, and if you look at the statistics, th there's a huge shift over the last, I don't know, a couple of decades at least towards third party, party funded projects, right? So they go through review process. That's risk averse. Everyone knows that. Um, plus there's all kinds of obligations that, are, that play out there, et cetera, et cetera. So mm -hmm. yes, peer, re peer review and reviewing is the best way we have of organizing this, but it's, uh, you know, it brings its own problems. So if you really want people to, to pursue some risky options, then, then don't advertise a sort of high risk funding stream because it never really is, um, but put money into the structure and let people get on with it. Um, I think the, the risk of people getting, I don't know, what do you want to call it? Sluggish or lazy or tired um, is, is minimal these days. I think that's a cost that we can easily bear. And it's far uh, smaller than the cost that we produce by all this reviewing and report writing and auditing uh, and, and, and having one competitive format after the other. So I think if we, if we drop some of that sort of, yeah, what do you want to call it? Neoliberal science policy that says, don't trust the scientists, make sure it's all competitive, make sure people don't get any rest and you know, inspire them to, to mm. the next exciting challenge. If we drop some of that, um, because it doesn't lead to efficient allocation of funds. If you drop some of that, calm the whole system down a little and make sure that especially that sort of midsection from late PhD to, um, yeah, to, to, to a sort of a senior career that is so precarious at the moment, but where people are so good that, you know, they've read so much, they're, they're sort of knee deep into their research, they're enthusiastic, you know, they're fully into it. But they're constantly busy trying to make the, their career work out for them, right? Trying to right. get the next contract, trying to find a tenured position, then it's tenure evaluations, etc. If you slow some of that down and calm everyone down a little <laughs> and, and take some of the competitive money, put it in a structure to enable people to, to think properly, think through projects properly and finish projects properly rather than rush to the next one, I think it would it, it'd do a world of good. Uh, mm -hmm. It'd be more in innovative, it'd be more risky, and people could spend time on, you know, we do this stuff situated modeling, where, 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 which is really just best practice, where you want modelers at the end of having done whatever they've modeled, think about how the model worked, whether that worked well, whether, where the difficulties were, you know, whether a different approach would have been better. People don't do that because once the key papers are out there, they need to rush to the next project, right, um, mm -hmm. in many cases. And we need to stop. We need to slow this process down. You know, we're not. It, it, I, I think it's it's become self-referential to 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 a, to a large degree. And slowing this down, and believing in the people who are committed to their fields to do good research. And of course, there's lots of people that don't, and there's lots of projects that don't deliver anything. But that's always been the case, and that's even that's even more the case in the system the way we run it at the moment. That's the whole point of science, right? Ninety-nine percent lead nowhere but we allow ourselves the luxury to do that because that one percent really gets us somewhere and who knows what that one percent is today or tomorrow that's right i'm also thinking of what's the cost of not doing it knowing that we have complex pluralistic problems out in the world and we might need innovative new solutions to try to address those but let, let's stay on the topic of this idea of the structure of, of some of the science systems and talk a little bit about how some of these research institutes like uh, iretis is uh, positioned so I would say, particularly in Germany, there's there's quite a lot of these inst these research institutes, which are kind of affiliates with some of the main established university systems, uh, including the one I'm working at. And I would see this as, to some extent, that they're a lot driven by a push towards themat thematic areas of research. So this kind of detachment a little bit away from disciplinary disciplinary oriented thinking and a move towards more problem solution and thematic organization of the science system, but yet still they're somehow attached and they're loosely affiliated. And I, I think there's different types of arrangements between different institutes. How is it positioned uh, with you guys? And what, what is that relationship in term with the university in terms of the freedom of the types of projects you can work on and the focus on different thematic areas? Yeah, well, that's a complex question. Um, so for IRA thesis, um, the, the initial point was to have a cross-faculty institute, right? Um, so to produce an institute that um, 
that in the, in the field of human environment systems or transformations of human environment systems that involves people from different faculties with the simple argument that um, let's call them environmental issues or problems don't run along disciplinary lines but I guess that's an old idea um, so that was the the initial idea and that worked uh, that worked well in bringing people together difficulty there then within the university structurally speaking uh, is that in the German system people end up doing this as a hobby you're so busy within your institute and within your discipline doing your teaching doing your self-administration doing all this sort of stuff that if you start to seriously work on a cross-faculty level uh, you end up putting a lot of extra time in um, more than you're sort of long-term structurally prepared to put into it mm -hmm. especially if you have a lot of third-party funded projects as well so this becomes a, a so that's a problem that the universities have if they're trying to dissolve disciplines um, the other one is trying to work with the extramural landscape Uh, like the Leibniz institutions or the Max Planck's, etc. And of course, the first question is peculiar German landscape. Um, you, you may think about it, whatever, you know, it's a long-standing <laughs> long debate why we need to have that split. Um, but what we are aiming for now specifically is what we're trying to do is, especially with Leibniz institutions who have a strong interest in sustainable development goals, uh, in interdisciplinary work, increasing internally within across Leibniz institutions, We, I think we are increasingly thinking this regionally now in terms of Berlin, Brandenburg, looking at this, thinking what's the expertise that we have here at the university at, and, and the wider Berlin University Alliance and which Leibniz institutions are here uh, and can we find an institutional format, that's what we're currently thinking about, an institutional format that allows us to have a, a shared structure so that that thematic expertise from the extramural institutions Uh, can work more into the teaching side, mm -hmm. uh, which I guess, especially in this human environment research is important because we need to train people differently, right? We need a, gener a generation of scientists that are more sort of versatile across the disciplinary boundaries. So on the one hand, bring the, bring the, um, the Leibniz institutions closer into the teaching uh, side. And on the other hand, um, bring some of the disciplinary thinking and the development of disciplines um, to the thematic institutions. Um, and then that way, sort of work on on the friction between disciplinary boundaries or disciplines and themes, etc. But it's it's a complicated landscape. It's very difficult to navigate legally and, and financially, and also in terms of um, kind of in terms of higher education policy. One thing I've been thinking about, it's also a reflection on. As I'm also part of one of these Leibniz institutes. Is how can they have a little bit of freedom which is separated from the faculty structure of the university to better facilitate interdisciplinary cooperation? I mean, one thing that I think about is just how do we organize the floor plan? Uh, who is sitting next to who in the office? Uh, how do we think about a different strategy for communications within, within, the, within the institute? And I wonder if, you've, if you guys have thought about that, like how do we from a practical day-to-day -day perspective, if we think about how to make interdisciplinary work on the ground, how do we do that? How do we, how do we put together the right team? Because this is a, it, it, you know, we come to the office, we, we have to do our day-to-day -day things and do something about those day-to-day -day things need to change when we're thinking about working in an interdisciplinary space. Yeah. So of course a super difficult question. Um, from an IRI thesis perspective, I think we're trying different things. The first one, I think space, in terms of architectural space, institute design is crucial. Not so much in terms of designing through who sits next to whom, but you need to have people together. You know, this needs to become a, a, also a social space. You, have, you know, knowledge practices um, are not just the exchange of specific information, right? People somehow need to need to gel. For our thesis, that's not straightforward. Um, I guess with Leibniz institutions, usually at least there's a, there's a building for each institute, so to speak. Mm -hmm. At a university, of course, under massive pressure, uh, also economic pressure now in the inner city, uh, mm -hmm. space is extremely scarce and you kind of, you're slotted into um, wherever, wherever there is space available. And uh, so that's not straightforward, but we've had, we have our corridor at the moment uh, in, in Mitte and that's sort of working, but what we're lacking is, is a reasonable social space. And I think, It's hard to sell that to people because everyone says, well, you need, what, you need a kitchen or something. How stupid is that? This is about top level science, right? But you need people to 
to exchange beyond their immediate project concerns. I think on, a, on an everyday basis, it's absolutely crucial. A lot of this you can't plan. You know, you can do your retreats uh, and you can do colloquia, et cetera. Um, but you need a sort of a base level of exchange where people talk to each other about all sorts of things uh, and become aware of each other's perspectives. Uh, I think that's absolutely crucial and it's still uh, often underestimated. At universities, I think people probably know, but they don't have the money to do much about it. Um, and the other thing which I think works well, um, also in IRE thesis, is this policy of making sure that people stay in the same room, even if they would usually sort of leave. Um, classic example would be your, um, your neoclassical economist and your political ecologist, right? They spend two minutes and they know this is not going to go anywhere because everything <laughs> I believe in is not part of your model. It's part of the kind of the externalities or part of the, you know, the error function, the, the error term. Uh, and this can't, can't work out. Um, but if you keep offering formats uh, and you kind of you, you, you install a, an institutional culture where it's clear that you have to tolerate these differences, then people begin, begin to appreciate that the others are probably not evil or stupid, but have a reason why, <laughs> why they, they view the world in this way and why they approach problems in that way. Mm -hmm. And that oftentimes, of course, doesn't overcome many barriers and there's lots of structural problems, but it's a first step into appreciating why others do what they do and appreciating other perspectives. And that's, I think, a very important road into, or first step into um, considering why that perspective matters and how it could benefit your own project and your own thinking. Mm -hmm. Makes me think that that developing those relationships and that understanding takes a lot of time. And when I think about the way a lot of science gets done now is in these is in these projects is and a lot of the actual empirical work and is done by PhD students and even master students and research assistants who have the time to go to the field, et cetera, and then the proper incentives to to do it on time and finish their degree. And but that project timeline might not be enough to build that understanding and it leads me to think how do we create a little of a culture of continuity in developing that way of thinking across different people when the when we in a large part operate in a project-based science system going towards yeah two one two three four five years max oh yeah, as I said, I think you're dead right there. I mean, that's the structural issue. Um, as I said earlier, I think taking some of the money out of competitive funding and giving it into the structure um, would take some of the pressure out. Um, of course, you know, that competitive money is not even uh, necessarily public money, right? So it's not it's not the states to to take and distribute in a different way, which is, of course is an issue. Mm. Um, I think it's on the other hand, so that's, that would be a major thing. Um, then we could, on a smaller scale, you could think about little things. For example, we do, why do we have three years PhD funding? Why do we have to write reports, reports every year to get the next year funding? I mean, yes, most of the time that works. Um, but why do, why do we not do one plus three? Very simple step, right? I have, even within the German system, I, I much prefer the US system, but okay. In the German system, have your standard funding as one plus three. If the, if the PhD doesn't get off well, you know, the question didn't work out, field access doesn't happen, model doesn't work, data is not available, whatever, you know that after the first year. Tough luck, end it there. Mm. But if it does work, you know, so that's a proper evaluation after a year, does this thing, did this thing get off the, off the road, so to speak? But then, you know, give, give them another three years after this thing runs properly. So you already have four years. That, that would, that, would just about cover realistically the time it takes to do an empirical PhD. At the moment, we give people three years and we expect them to find that last year from somewhere, which is constantly, especially at universities, a constant hassle trying to find that money, takes people's mind off their work, produces insecure situations, totally unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And the other very macro thing, which again is hugely unpopular with many, but I think, especially within the university system, right, we have scarce resources and we focus on trying to find the best people, you know, with students and with every, we're always looking for excellence. Who are the best. That's very hard to tell, right? As everyone knows, who's ever looked into sort of science studies and ev evaluation. That's very hard to tell. What's much easier to tell, especially with students, is let's take the, the 20 to 30% who don't even want to be there 
you know, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily mean those with the worst grades because there could be people mm. with bad grades that are actually quite interested in having bad stuff, whatever, you know, all sorts of reasons. So I, I don't mean to cull the bad ones. You know, it's not a it's not evil policy, but there's lots of people at university who don't really want to be there. You know, and if you go into university teaching, it takes you a few weeks in a large course and you know people who are there who, who I don't know, they don't want to be at a university at all. It's the wrong subject area. Um, they shouldn't be full-time students um, or maybe they can't cut it or maybe they can't do it at the moment. If we took those people and gave them an opp opportunity to change into, the dif into a different track, different discipline, go leave the university, whatever, without sort of losing face in the process of doing it, we would, we would take pressure out of the university system because were, you know, we'd have fewer students mm -hmm. if the budget stayed the same and everything would slow down a little. You know, the less you know, less review writing, less coursework marking, uh, less busy uh, seminars or smaller seminars, etc. And, and these are really, you know, it's 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 simple things. Um, of course, you know, it does cost the state something per if if you're calculating per capita in terms of students. Um, but it wouldn't be more money spent on science. Um, but it would make the system more livable. Uh, you know, which I guess is, is, has to be the aim because, I mean, university life, I guess, is becoming increasingly unattractive to a lot of people that we would like to have in the system, mm -hmm. at least in the German context. And a couple of things you've touched on in the last, in the last couple of minutes here. I've been wondering about this, this gap between interdisciplinarity and transdisciplinarity. And I often see it written in papers and, you know, I'm, I also write this too often, like we take an inter and a transdisciplinary approach. And to me, these are, or at least one way of seeing it would be these fundamentally different modes of operation. And I'm wondering if within the discussions that you've had, or perhaps personally, do you have a sort of a kind of a go-to definition of, of what you think interdisciplinarity would be? or do you take a more pluralistic one? And then what do you see as this kind of fundamental difference between inter and transdisciplinarity? Yeah, I have a pretty clear view of that. Um, although I see that there's of course a huge variety out there. So interdisciplinarity for me uh, is people working across disciplines or between disciplines. And I see different modes. Um, and you can see uh, there's this book by Andrew Berry and Georgina Bourne on interdisciplinarity, which does this very well. Um, you have a sort of uh, a synthetic mode where you're working together. You have a support mode where one discipline uh, provides some piece of knowledge or expertise to another discipline. And you have this, this approach that uh, they call um, uh, agonistic antagonistic interdisciplinarity, which I much prefer. And, that I understand now in the context of human environment research, especially across the divide of natural and social sciences or humanities and natural sciences, where you're constantly arguing over the, I guess the ontological nature of the object of research. So is mm. this about climate or is this about inequality? Is this about land use or is this about you know, symbolic value? Is this about, uh, uh, I don't know, the value of supply in supply chains or is this about uh, business ethics? Mm -hmm. uh, you're basically talking about the same, you're looking at the same phenomenon at the same part of the world. You're looking at people you know, doing something on land or selling something or whatever, um, but you have totally different perspectives from the different disciplines. And it's arguing over what is this actually about that I would consider this sort of agonistic interdisciplinarity, which I find super important because it clarifies what's at stake and how mm. best to produce knowledge about it. So that's within the university in, a, in the broadest sense or knowledge producing institutions as professional institutions. And transdisciplinary for me, transdisciplinarity is then if we engage with people outside knowledge building institutions, engage with all kinds of expertise, with experience, uh, with professionals in the field, um, that these could be funding agencies, these could be all kinds of different publics, lay people, if that's a term um, that you would like to use, etc. And that's a whole different ballgame, right? You know, that makes research more complicated. You're talking about the kind of co-designing and co-production of research questions, um, uh, etc. And um, I think universities are only now beginning, at least my reading, 
apart from a few uh, uh, sort of uh, abnormalities, so to speak, that have uh, cottoned onto this earlier, um, are only now beginning to understand what this means. Uh, I guess the kind of it, it runs under the slogan of third mission at the moment. So we have research and teaching as the first and second mission, and then there's this third mission, which is mm -hmm. opening up to science to society and doing this transdisciplinary research. Uh, and I think that's already the first mistake. If we call it third mission, it sounds as if there's research and teaching, and then there's something else, mm -hmm. which really quickly becomes some sort of sort of sort of advanced science communication. And I think that's a huge mistake. So rather than calling it third mission, this is part of, of research and teaching. And if it's part of, it's part of normal research um, that we engage different kinds of publics and practice partners and whatever you want to call them. Um, and not everyone needs to do it, um, but there's, there's sort of research fields and themes where this is almost inevitable for, for ethical and political and epistemic reasons. Uh, and that makes research slower that made, makes outcomes less predictable. It makes it a little harder oftentimes to publish in classical journals. And I think we need to adjust our sort of reward systems and evaluations if we do them uh, to accommodate this kind of work. Mm -hmm. Two things I wanna come back to there. The first one is how do you see science communication and transdisciplinarity as being related or are they related at all? I mean. If you wanted to be cynical, some people, maybe a kind of a narrow viewed ecologist might say, hey, the social sciences are the science communication arm uh, to society. <laughs> and you, you are the one, you guys study the people, you guys know what to do. Go tell them about the science, go tell them what we know. And I, I don't see it that way, but I, I think there, <laughs> I, I do see there, there, there is this, this is this real blur between communicating science versus co-production of knowledge. And I'm interested if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah. Now I'm I I I, I know that or I'm being confronted with this. Um, uh, let's call it appreciation of social science as the the, the the science who brings the knowledge to the people if 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 it goes well. Um, but that's of course ludicrous. <laughs> uh, that's not how it can work. I think in in an ideal world, um, science communication in a very very broad sense. Uh, intertwines uh, or becomes entangled very closely with uh, with scientific method. Um, so we have this proposal, for example, uh, it's being it's under review at the moment. So we have we have fingers crossed, but we are waiting. Where we've uh, Iris thesis just joined forces with the theatre of the Anthropocene, uh, a, a group of uh, actors and performers. And the idea here is that we want to look at uh, water-related issues in Berlin Brandenburg. And how basically through climate change, the hydrology or the socio-hydrology of the region changes, right? And that's a co-productive approach. So we want to bring in stakeholders from day one, not to solve their problems. So we're not problem solvers in this sort of simple applied sense, but because we want to discuss with stakeholders and different kinds of publics uh, in, a, in a sort of socially diverse way, what pressing research questions and problems are. Right. So it, 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 this starts from the from the very beginning of the research design. You bring in other people's perspectives and not only the disciplines that you care to to let participate. So and then there's there's sort of research going on and, you know, you collect your data on, on, on people's perceptions, on hydrological dynamics, changing climate, etc. Uh, and but this then engages in various ways in participatory methods. So we use participatory modeling as an approach. We use uh, uh, we want to use serious gaming and participatory ma mapping. And most people would consider this as sort of standard scientific method. You bring in people, um, but you use them in a scientific method. Now, if you are trying to look, for example, into possible water futures, where would we want to go? You need some sort of suggestive power, if you like, right? You need to get people into a mode where they can imagine different kinds of futures. Now, scientific method, I would argue, is pretty bad at helping people to imagine futures. You, know, you can give people numbers and you can sort of draw up scenarios, but you know, if you read an IPCC report, that doesn't paint a vivid picture of 2050, right? Unless you're extremely versed in that, in that field and you can translate that for yourself. So we're bringing in the theater people um, to, to, um, to write and to build performances, theatrical performances um, that help people 
um, to imagine different kinds of futures and what their role within those might be. Um, and you could consider that science communication because the, kind of the, 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 the performative parts uh, build uh, on findings that we get from standard scientific method, right? So they're, 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 kind, of, they're, they're kind of translating and beginning to, to illustrate um, scenarios that we come up with, uh, but also then mix in their own logic and start building these into all kinds of uh, also fantastic ways. And people who take part in this then come back, so to speak, uh, across the across the fence uh, and re-engage with questions of serious gaming, where they have to talk about their preferences and where, 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 where they would like to go. So you could see how more performative and representational forms of science communication mix in or kind of become an iterative process together with method and the whole thing you can then call you can call this communication you can call it basic research doesn't really matter um, but it has performative elements it has very rigorous scientific method there's a lot of translation going on it involves a, a, a wider range of people than we would usually get to participate in science etc so in that sense um, uh, i think there's clear roles, clear expertise for social science, for science communication and, and, and for scientific research or natural science research. Um, but there's increasingly clever ways of, of mixing them and of, of iterating them in research designs that reach, reach out to more people. And I think that's crucial for a lot of different reasons. Mm. How do we measure success in those processes? You, know, you mentioned it earlier, and that was the second thing I wanted to bring up was these traditional academic outputs. I mean, for, for the academic, it's the paper or the book, and you want to get that out there, and you want to get it in a reasonable journal with good impact factor, and that's all quantified, and it's easy to measure, and everyone's happy. And with with these processes, it's, it's so much more... It, it's just so much more different in terms of the, how do we think how do we evaluate success is is it can academics even be the ones who evaluate the success in those processes at all and if we do write something about it in the end this is this kind of reflective aspect where the science is learning but i don't know if that's really the goal of this whole process in the end yeah it's hugely complicated um one thing I don't think we ought to be doing is what the UK has done under the label of social impact, right? Where you end up, where sort of desperate scientists end up writing to their local MP to ask him or her whether they can quote their research paper in some policy debate so they can show that this, you know, their stuff is being read. Mm. Uh, that comes from a from a almost an, a, a utopia or an illusion of tangibility of these effects, quantifiability, that makes us very, very hard and leads to absurd practices that are really not very helpful, although I understand the intention behind it. So I think, um, I'm, I'm not a specialist on this, but I think we need, we need to look into the, more into the quality of these processes. So the quality of engagement of people, what kind of diversity of what, what sort of range of people participates in these participatory or transdisciplinary designs. Um, and you can do that with everything from counting different kinds of people, which I guess would be the crudest way of doing this, through a whole set of surveys, through more in-depth conversations to see how people engage with this process and what it does with them. And a lot of the times, one thing is what people contribute in terms of the specific project, but they also get a different sense of what science is doing in society. They get a different sense of, of a political process. They become different citizens in this sense, right? So one thing is finding the right instruments to measure this meaningfully. And I think qualitative methods probably need, uh, need to be brought in there um, alongside all, a mixed methods approach, let's say. The other one is, um, Starting from the other side, your high-level publications, if they don't reach people, are no good either, right? So, I mean, they're good. In, I, I have no problem with super-specialized publications that do something in the field and no one ever reads them apart from the two people who understand it. That's perfectly fine, right? So science needs to have room for that. But if we're claiming to have impact and we're talking social ecological research fields and we want to be out there, we want to include people because it's value-laden decisions that are being made, um, we need to show how we can relate scientific knowledge productions to different publics out there. 
so the, the burden is really on those who are not engaging to, to try to engage. And part of the reason why there's so much frustration um, with, with climate science and why there's so much debate about, um, yeah, you're part of a scientific elite and what do you care, is because climate impact science, for example, is, is not very tangible to people, right? It's not very accessible. So I think we should be thinking about how to close the gap between some sort of elitist understanding of science uh, and and sort of people's everyday uh, people's everyday lives, um, and I think that's what transdisciplinary research ought to do. And I think along those lines, needs do we have to think about how do we evaluate the outcome of projects? And do they do they make science more tangible? And that's of course hard to quantify if such effects they're slow they're subtle um, and I think we need to to some degree regain some trust in that you've, if you fund projects properly things will happen even if you can't or can, can only sort of insufficiently measure them in terms of quantifiable outcomes. I often hear this term knowledge broker and I'm and I I, I think it means being the person who's kind of in that gap, who can facilitate those connections between maybe the classical specialist and then the layperson or the fisher or et cetera. And I'm wondering, it gets a little bit back to the science communication idea. Is that, should that be part of academic training if you're gonna go through and do transdisciplinary research yeah, training, then it, how much of it is then becoming a specialist and creating the knowledge? Is knowledge brokering now an academic skill where you learn how to specifically engage with society and, or is it more, again, like we talked before, is it more about team science? So you have specific knowledge brokers, you have the scientists, you have uh, the NGO, et cetera, and you put this together. Do, have you thought about this before? Yeah, I think that's up for debate at the moment. And I'm, I don't have a, a, a particularly sort of firm position on this. One part of me, and I hear many people that I respect very much argue for it is we have to, this is, a, this is about a division of labor, right? We are a specialized society, we divide labor up, people specialize. Uh, mm -hmm. So we should have people doing research and then we, have, we, we should have knowledge brokers and they should be particularly trained to do that or specifically trained to do that. Uh, and then you have a sort of a chain of translations. Um, and I can see why this is very useful. I can certainly see these jobs uh, coming online and, and increasing institutions looking for these sorts of people. Um, with a certain sort of charisma, with a certain training, uh, a certain set of method skills, but also a very good understanding um, of the science they're trying to uh, relate to different kinds of publics or trying to involve. So I can see a lot of arguments in favor of this model. The risk of this is that um, public engagement, I, I guess is, as it's then often labeled, becomes is something that you, that you outsource mm -hmm. uh, to, to, uh, to, to a group of people in your institute. And I'm not too keen on that. I'm, I'm not saying everyone needs to engage and have sort of transdisciplinary projects. Firstly, that's, that would be stupid because not every research question requires somehow publics to be involved mm -hmm. uh, and not everyone wants to do it. Um, but I think it's important that what we call public engagement reaches right into the core of scientific method. So what, what I want people to understand, and then they don't need to go down that road but they need to i think appreciate that if you if you're making choices of method or of research design they are not purely scientific choices in the sense of method driven choices but they're also ethical and political choices always you know you're choosing to produce certain knowledge and not others not other you're choosing to go down this road and not this road and this will have implications for what comes out at the end not in terms of right or wrong but in terms of what sort of knowledge will become available. So these are value-laden choices. Uh, and it would be useful to expose these choices to all kinds of other value systems out there and everyday lives out there. So I think it's important that however specialized you are, at least in the field of social ecological research, broadly speaking, or sustainability research, that you are in touch in whatever ways works for you with sort of socially divergent milieu and different ways of being in the world and different ways of valuing the environment or using the environment or, or living your life. Um, 
And I think that's what we should be supporting. And knowledge brokers can help to do that, but it shouldn't be reduced to it. They can broker so people find, you know, publics find their way into, into institutes or the other way around. But I wouldn't um, let people off the hook to say, oh, that's, you know, let, let the science communicators do this. I think it's down to everyone to understand that science is also about, yeah, it's value laden. And so you need to confront yourself with society and where it's going and with the politics of it all. Mm. And don't um, sort of outsource that to a knowledge broker. Well, we've gotten pretty deep here on some theory of maybe new theory of science going forward. And you touched on a project or two that you're working on earlier. When you think about what you would like to do going forward, what you would, the types of project that perhaps touching on some of these ideas and trying to, to work on them in the next years, what, what are those? What, what do you, what interests you? What, uh, what are some of the problems you would like to put some answers to? Oh. Well, the key thing that's been bugging me for a while, and I'm, uh, I would like to go uh, into this in the future, is we are lacking a good understanding of the quality of social ecological change over, t over time, over longer time periods. So there's some people around there, the uh, pe people in Vienna, uh, Friedrich Krausmann and Helmut Haber, et cetera, so that, there would be some of them, and there's of course others, uh, are very good at um, sort of long-term studies. Um, of social ecological change, but by and large, when we think long-term development, we think quantification. You know, we have these long-term ecological research networks. Some of them are social ecological, but still sort of very, uh, a very quantified understanding of the social. Mm -hmm. And I think we are lacking a very valuable component of, of social ecological change, namely its quality. There's something about sort of slow moving shifts in, in, in attitude, in, in the way you go about everyday life that we're not capturing, but that's absolutely crucial. And I think we need to understand this locally because that's where we are, that's where we can do this long-term work sort of easiest. Uh, so that's what I would like to put forward, uh, sort of long-term, like a long-term truly social ecological monitoring or like a living archive of social ecological change. Because I see so many questions that come up now. If you look at kind of um, Berlin and its uh, Brandenburg surroundings, the question of why is there so much support for right-wing movements? Um, what about you know the problems of wind farms and resistance? Uh, why do so many of these eco projects don't really get off the ground? What happens in kind of these post-socialist spaces, etc.? There's always little bits and pieces of information, but we are lacking um, a, a deep understanding of the kind of the, the social ecological atmosphere, if you like, around this and how this is changing across decades. And I think we, we, we have as a university uh, or as, a, as, as a knowledge producing institutions in the region, we almost have an obligation like we do for the monitoring of chemicals and temperature and weather, climate, whatever. We should do that more comprehensively. And it's not straightforward to monitor quality <laughs> with qualitative methods and mixed methods and it's potentially expensive. So you have, you know, it's also a question of method, but I would be super interested um, in, in developing that. And I think it would be a real asset. And I'm meeting lots of people who say that would be great to have. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if we knew how people's lives actually changed subtly in, in all kinds of ways over the last 30 years? Absolutely. Especially yeah. since 89 or something in Berlin. Um, but we don't because it's project, no, we had this because it's project driven uh, you know, because it's hard to, to secure long-term funding uh, on, uh, for this sort of empirical work. But I think it would be a huge asset to build that and then to work this into a comparative network like we do with long-term ecological networks where you just, just so to speak, um, scare quotes, have to put a, a monitoring station out there and someone needs to go there every now and again and click, uh, you know, take out the data, so to speak. Uh, much more difficult for social ecological change, but, but doable if, if in, a, in an inter and transdisciplinary fashion. Have you heard of, or thought of rather, how you can think about storing, archiving, and sharing qualitative data in a way which is still ethically, and I guess eth ethically was probably the word I think of most here is because it's so sensitive, because it's so personal, because it's, there's so much data protection rights, particularly in Europe now. How do we, that's a fundamentally different object uh, to manage than uh, ones and zeros. Have you thought about how, how we can make that network of, of long-term qualitative social ecological yeah. research? 
I mean, we've thought about this, or I've thought about this. There's others out there um, who are kind of thinking about this professionally, of course, for, for sort of repositories for qualitative data. My answer to it is we need to think this as a, a, a co-productive or co-produced archive. If we're thinking about this as data, that only solves part of the problem, right? So you can start to anonymize quite difficult with qualitative data, but of course there's now more machine learning and sort of text recognition stuff. So that might come along with computational social science to some degree. Um, the other thing is of course, metadata and context information, right? So, if, so mm -hmm. your field notes or whatever, they're not like survey data, um, not even like interview data, they're kind, of, kind of they're highly personal notes that only make sense uh, if they're contextualized. Mm -hmm. That context you can abstract and write down to some degree, but really you need to talk to someone you know so if, if you spend three years in Brandenburg doing fieldwork in some village uh, and I, look, I read your field notes it's interesting but I'd really need to talk to you so I think if you're building an archive like that it needs to be a living archive it needs to have people in there who, who can still sort of respond to queries um, and this could also include people who are willing to take part in long-term field relationships in a transdisciplinary sense, right? So if you have a permanent field site out there in the village, you could involve the, the you know, using the, kind of the classical anthropological village, but you could use the village to actively take part in this, right? It, it could be part of their tourism marketing. You can find ways of making this immediately useful. Um, but so you have people in the village who are willing to be part of this and you, you know, you, you can call them up or whatever. So if someone comes in with a good new research question, you know, your average, American PhD student comes to Berlin, fascinated by the city, wants to do research. Well, first immerse yourself into this archive. Talk to people who are willing to talk, refine the questions that you had by sort of dwelling in this material for a while, uh, which is partly just there as data, but partly also contacts and going there and talking to people and having a look and maybe following particular walks with information and, and this sort of thing to then come up with a better research question that's already closer to to your site of interest. So I think we need to switch from thinking data repository to thinking living and co-produced archive that involves people much more. And of course, to get that into continuity is not straightforward. But universities have been around for a long time. They will be around for a long time. So surely there's a way of, of being a host for such an archive. Thanks for tuning in. If you're interested in our other content we produce on the podcast, including our full episodes, our insight episodes, and our PEX webinar series, feel free to visit our website, www.incommonpodcast.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at incommonpod.